I continue this week with um, the series that I'm doing for the summer, Our Place in God's World. This week is uh, Politics and Citizenship. Now, I know you're saying, oh, geez, politics. I don't want to hear about politics. Well, just to remind you, as I did a couple weeks ago, next week is sexuality. So just hang in there. Okay. <laughs> I find as I talk to people about this week, you know, politics and citizenship, that politics has a negative connotation. It's, uh, you know, it's the swamp, it's gridlock, it's not talking to the other side of the aisle, it's self-interest, it's looking out for oneself, it's a narrow view and not thinking of the, the big picture. You know, citizenship seems to have a positive connotation. It's involvement, it's active, um, it, it's caring about the community more than oneself. We spend a lot of time on politics. Uh, we might spend a lot of time reading about it in the paper, in magazines, reading uh, websites, stuff that's online. We might spend a lot of time watching uh, cable TV shows on one side or the other, and um, I'm not sure how good all that immersion is. I, I think it might be numbing us, it might be deadening us, it might be leading, uh, making us very passive and very angry. I wonder um, if for every hour we spend watching cable TV, we would commit to an equal hour um, in Bible reading and in devotions, or for every hour watching cable TV, we would spend a half hour tutoring a child or visiting in a nursing home, or for every hour watching cable TV, we would spend 15 minutes in evangelism. I, I think either um, literacy and uh, community and um, evangelism would increase or we would decrease our amount of time watching uh, cable TV. This is a sermon on church and state. Now over the years I've learned that people don't like it when ministers talk politics. You know, there's one thing about preaching but politics is meddling. So preacher you quit preaching and now you're meddling. As I've had complaints against me, I've realized that if people don't agree with what I've said, I'm being political. If they do agree with they, what I say, I'm either being prophetic or just a good Christian. Um, so think about that. If you disagree with me, wonder if you're the one being political or whatever. Um, over the years, I've, I've said that I'm against the death penalty, and I've gotten emails on that. I've said that I support government-funded uh, health care for all persons, and I've gotten emails about that, about bringing politics into the church. Just a good rule of thumb. If you agree with it, I'm a great preacher. If you don't, I'm meddling. Okay. 
politics is kind of a gotcha. Uh, a minister can't win, and, and it's hard to win. And this is the background for when the Pharisees and the Herodians come to Jesus with this, this question about paying taxes to Caesar. It's like Peter, uh, Jesus is having a press conference, and he's getting these various questions from the religious leaders from all the different parties. And it's strange that the Herodians and the Pharisees decide to ask this question about taxes to Caesar because you couldn't have more polar opposites than the Herodians and the Pharisees. This would be like um, the Tea Party getting in league with the Bernie Sanders supporters and saying, let's ask this question. This'll get him. You know, and geez, you know, how would you ever get those two parties to agree on anything? Well, they're agreeing here that they want Jesus out. So they ask this embarrassing question. If Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, he looks like he's in league with the occupying army. He looks like a turncoat and a traitor to the Jewish people. And he loses all of his followers who, who, who are nationalists and want Jewish independence. If he says, no, don't pay taxes, he looks like a revolutionary. And he brings the wrath of Rome down upon him. It's a no-win question for Jesus. But he gets out of it by saying, whose image is on the coin? May I see a coin that you pay taxes with? Whose image is on this coin? Well, Caesar's image, Tiberius's image is on this coin. The emperors put their image on the coin. It was good propaganda because you knew wherever you were in the empire who the emperor was. It's like, you know, the president putting his or her picture on the dollar bill. It's good propaganda. You know who to vote for. So he says, whose image? Well, Tiberius' image is on this. So you render unto Tiberius what is Tiberius. And then he says, you render unto God what is God's. Now at first reading, and this is often interpreted this way, it sets up the two kingdoms, the kingdom of Caesar and the kingdom of God. And the two don't interact. The kingdom of Caesar worries about political things. The kingdom of God worries about salvation and getting to heaven. And so there's no intersection. The kingdom of God doesn't really care about the budget or taxation or racism or immigration or same-sex marriage or war and peace or the death penalty or torture. That's Caesar's reign. And Caesar doesn't worry about salvation. That's God's reign. And the two don't intersect. That's often the way that is read. So don't get involved in politics. Another way to read that is to say, whose image are we made in? The coin is made on the image of Caesar, and we render unto Caesar the coins. 
But whose image are we made in? We're made in the image of God. And so we render unto God ourselves. Jesus isn't setting up two kingdoms here. He's setting up an intersection where we are in the image of God and we represent God in this world. So how we act has a great influence on the government and on the community. This is very Methodist. In the discipline, there's a sentence that says, we proclaim no personal gospel that fails to express itself in social concerns. And we proclaim no social gospel that fails to express itself in personal transformation of individuals. We believe in the intersection of the two kingdoms. And this is where you get Methodist statements on war and peace and on the death penalty and on taxes and on domestic surveillance and on torture. We'll make statements in everything because we believe the Christian is involved. We might be familiar with the statement we've, we've, I've heard it frequently, my country right or wrong. That's not the full quotation. The full quotation is my country right or wrong. When right, to be kept in the right. When wrong, to be put in the right. So how does a Christian live as a citizen? in this world where the kingdoms intersect. Well, this brings us to Romans 13, where Paul talks about the authority that's given our rulers by God. I was interested, I read a, a term paper I wrote 45 years ago. How many of you have term papers from 45 years ago? How many of you were alive 45 years ago? I, I felt sorry for the professor who had to read that paper. But I read it, and one of the things I said in the paper was, on, on Romans 13, was that how people interpreted it was, was influenced by what was going on in their society at that time. So people who read that about obeying our, our authorities because they're given that authority by God uh, interpreted differently in the 17th century than they do in the early 20th than they do in the late 20th century. There was an article in the Dispatch Religion page Friday that this passage is being trans uh, interpreted by, by right-wing Christians as God has given our leaders the authority and permission to bomb Korea. And it kind of scared me that the scripture was being interpreted that way. Paul wrote that scripture 
because there were people in the church who believed that if they were saved by grace, since they were saved by grace, their behavior didn't matter anymore. So they could break the law and God didn't care. So Paul himself was influenced in that passage by what was going on at the time. And Paul was saying, no, we obey our authorities and, and that laws are good for the functioning of society. I find that what I'm going to say about that passage is also influenced by what's going on in our society now. I read that passage in Romans 13 about the authority given our rulers in light of what goes before and what goes after it. Chapter 12 of Romans is about the body of Christ and how Christians behave and think of their neighbor in the church. Paul says, let your love be genuine. Hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. As much as within you lies, see what is noble in all things and all people. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who are your enemies. Pray for your enemies and do not seek vengeance. But if they are hungry, give them food. If they are thirsty, give them drink. Do not be haughty or self-righteous, but be lowly and humble of heart. After he says that, he then goes into how we behave in the larger world. And what he's saying is how we behave as Christians blessing those who persecute us, and so on, shapes how we live in the world. It's God and country in that order, not country and God. And how often do our politics shape our faith? rather than the other way around. Are we a Christian first, or are we a Democrat or Republican first? Paul wants Christianity to shape our citizenship. This week I read a several essays by Martin Luther King Jr. I still think he has a lot to say to us about citizenship. He talks about just and unjust laws. And he says an unjust law is a law that's not moral. It degrades human dignity and human personality. A just law 
is a moral law that lifts up and enhances human personality. And he says that non-compliance with an unjust law is as much a moral obligation as is compliance with a just law. And then he goes on to talk about how we can obey or not obey an unjust law. And he says we can always choose to obey an unjust law and let it go its merry way and be ourselves degraded and have others degraded. And he says another way is to violently resist an unjust law. And the third way is to non-violently resist an unjust law. And he says in the last two cases, the violent resistor and the non-violent resistor understand that suffering has great power in influencing people. But the nonviolent, the violent resistor wants to inflict suffering. They want people to be hurt as badly as they have been hurt. The nonviolent resistor wants to absorb suffering, does not want to increase suffering. And he says the nonviolent resistor believes and hopes, believes in the goodness of their enemy and hopes for the nobility of their enemy. They see a bright future. I think then he goes on to say four points about citizenship. Know your facts. Get your facts straight. Know what is true. Don't act on emotion. Don't act on anecdote. Don't act on feelings. Know what the facts are. Two, negotiate. Take your argument to the other side. Actually talk to your enemy. And three, exercise what he calls self-purification. Examine your inward motivation. Are you blessing your enemy or do you hate your enemy? Do you seek your enemy's good? Have you purged yourself of any self, of all self-righteousness? Once you're clear on your self-purification, then have direct action. Just parenthetically, it's interesting that it, it didn't get much publicity at the time, 
that every one of the civil disobedient marches was preceded by a long prayer meeting in a church where the marchers prayed for their enemies. Now I wonder how often those first three steps are acted on today before direct action is taken. How often do people get the truth and the facts? How often do people negotiate? How often do people exercise self-purification? When I think of the driver in Charlottesville, my guess is he went to direct action and skipped the first three steps. Citizenship is important. The discipline says no government can be strong without the willing and positive contribution of its citizens. Jesus and Paul don't give us specific advice. Paul ends Romans by saying, give honor where honor is due, give tribute where tribute is due, give respect where respect is due. I think citizenship, Christian citizenship, begins by our looking around and saying, somebody ought to, somebody ought to call, somebody ought to do, somebody ought to say. And I think that's probably God's call to us, that we're somebody. That somebody ought to do something about the trash in the alleys that somebody ought to do something about immigration, that somebody ought to do something about illiteracy. Voting is the bare minimum of citizenship. A strong country has willing and positive citizens who are involved. Somebody ought to do something about illiteracy. Well, maybe that's signing up to tutor a child at Hubbard for a half hour a week. And maybe from there it's saying, why are? What are the conditions why kids are illiterate? Maybe I should talk to the principal. And there maybe I ought to take a class in reading fundamentals. And maybe I ought to go to the school board. And citizenship becomes involved in politics. It's constructive. I read an article, not in a religious magazine, so I really took it seriously, because they were talking about religion, and they said the um, decline in civility on both the left and the right in our country could probably be traced to the decline in church attendance in both the left and the right. That people don't know the fundamentals of Christian behavior anymore. 
I think our citizenship and our involvement is incredibly important. It is what the world needs. You know, God so loved the world. God needs people who bless their enemies, who pray for those who persecute them, who look for what is noble, and who hate the evil and bless the good. God is looking for citizens for that intersection of God's kingdom with the world. May we be those people. May it be so.